The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Welcome to the 15th episode of the second season of The Window on the World. Today is Friday, December 2nd, and in this podcast we will hear the best editorials from around the world on the migration crisis, the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, and the Chinese protests against restrictions related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's start right away with the first series of editorials. Today's first topic is the migration crisis. To find a solution, an extraordinary meeting of the interior ministers of the EU member states was held last Friday. Today's first contribution on the topic comes from the Spanish newspaper El País. The Spanish paper's editorial board starts with retelling the story of the Ocean Viking, the ship from the NGO SOS Mediterranean, which triggered a crisis between Italy and France, and then widens its gaze to address the migration situation as a whole. The food crisis generated in Africa by the war in Ukraine, combined with migratory pressures due to climate change, have accelerated the arrival of irregular migrants in the EU to 275,000 people this year, 73% more than in the same period in 2021, the journalists write. In particular, migrants and refugees on the route across the Mediterranean from North Africa have increased by 50%, and all forecasts indicate that the number will continue to grow. All of this happens, however, despite the fact that for the European Commission, EU states have a moral duty and legal obligation to rescue migrants at sea. The measures included in the plan to strengthen the Union's action are neither new nor able to address the emergency. Only concrete action, the editorial concludes, can put a stop to the daily drama in the Mediterranean, as well as avoid future internal diplomatic crises within the Union on the migration issue. Instead, the next article takes us to one of the two countries involved in the diplomatic crisis we mentioned earlier, the French newspaper Le Monde. For academics Shoshana Fien and Thomas Lindemann, political science professors at the Catholic University of Lille and the University of Versailles-Saint-Quentin, respectively, European states use legislation to justify their own irresponsibility. Instead, shipwrecked people are often presented as the ones responsible for their plight. It is argued that it is risky for migrants to cross the Mediterranean and that their well-being would be better in their own country or in neighboring ones, justifying the position with arguments centered on efficiency and humanitarianism, the two professors argue. This position, in addition to the Dublin regulations requirement, that asylum seekers apply in the European country of arrival, offloads the responsibility for reception onto peripheral countries, such as Italy and Greece. Another argument often used by governments is that deaths at sea are the result of the activities of criminals and human traffickers, a view widely contested by academics and civil society organizations, because it ignores other structural conditions, such as the tightening of border policies and the reduction of legal migration routes, forcing migrants to turn to criminal organizations. Such justifications, the article explains, gives the impression that the law is meant to protect legal status and not human beings. Rescuers seem to care more about the border than the castaways, the columnists bitterly observe in closing. 
we continue to narrow our gaze on the migration issue and go even more into the specifics of the public debate. One of the most remarkable, yet least remarked upon, changes in politics over the past decade has been the dramatic liberal shift in public opinion on immigration, notes Robert Ford, professor at the University of Manchester and columnist for Britain's The Guardian. The decades-long tendency to see immigration as a problem to be controlled is now in rapid decline, the professor explains. The rising view in the country across the channel is that immigration can bring many benefits, economic, social and cultural. The share of voters who say migration levels should stay the same or increase has never been higher, even as migration has hit record highs. The reasons behind this shift would mainly be Brexit and the COVID-19 pandemic, which have highlighted the importance for society of the jobs held by migrants. The Labour Party now has a unique opportunity to change the immigration discourse, Ford's editorial concludes. It may be a risk worth taking. We continue this press review by talking instead about the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, which occurs every November 25th. This particular date was chosen in memory of the murder of the three Mirabel sisters, political activists in the Dominican Republic who were killed in 1960 on the orders of then-dictator Rafael Leonidas Trujillo. A worldwide study of gender-related homicides of women released in 2019 by the United Nations Office on Drug Control and Crime Prevention found that in 2017, 137 women died worldwide every day at the hands of their partner or family member. The first feminism-themed editorial is by Lucia Taboada, a journalist for the Spanish El Diario. According to Taboada, on some occasions, anti-feminism is like food in your teeth. It takes someone to point it out for you to realize it. For the journalist, in fact, most men and women do not deny the existence of the wage gap harassment or violence against women, quite the contrary. What they do not identify with, however, is the label of being macho, even if one or more women have pointed out to them attitudes that made them feel uncomfortable or violated. Taboada brings the example of work. Most men, the columnist writes, do not experience systematic discrimination in the workforce, as many women report. It is difficult, therefore, for a man to understand how the many small discriminations to which women are subjected in the work context affects them at a deeper level, undermining women's professional and personal self-esteem. According to research conducted by the Queen Sophia Centre on Adolescence and Youth, among younger boys, one in four think feminism is trying to harm men. Feminist arguments can become tiresome, periodically recursive and repetitive, with the veneer of anger that exasperates. Taboada admits, who points out, however, but they are still there for a reason, for ourselves and for our rights. But speaking more specifically about gender-based violence, there are 788 women killed by a family member or partner in 2020 in 17 EU member states. The worrying statistic is the opening line of the editorial by Maria Eugenia Palop and Malin Bjork, published in Belgium's EU Observer. But these are not the only types of violence women in the EU suffer. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, the columnist point out, said, 
Denying access to health services, including abortion, can constitute gender-based violence, torture, and or cruel, inhumane, and degrading treatment. Even in Europe, women often face many obstacles in accessing pregnancy termination. One example is the case of Justyna Widrzynka of Poland, who is on trial in her home country for aiding and abetting abortion because she allegedly helped a woman who was a victim of domestic violence to have an abortion. Another aspect that is often ignored in the public debate is what Palop and Björk call economic violence, which reserves abortion for those who can afford it. Every day, the columnists explain, thousands of women suffer patriarchal violence, at home, in public life, or through the structural violence of a state that denies them their most basic rights. To curb this phenomenon, they conclude, the union should provide all the legal tools necessary to guarantee women their rights. As we have heard, the economic condition of women is sometimes an additional reason for social exclusion and violence against women. And it is on the economic condition of women in our society that today's next and final contribution on this topic focuses. Laurence Nkawa, a journalist for the French Les Echo, presents us with data gathered by the Women's Forum for Economy and Society, which met this week in Paris. In 2022, only 45% of women will receive a pension worldwide, highlights the forum's publication. But there is something perhaps even more troubling. The study was carried out on some 3,500 citizens of G7 countries, which collectively account for 46% of the world's GDP. Even in first world countries, women over 65 fall into poverty more often than men. There are several reasons behind this figure, such as the wage gap, the fact that women often work in lower-skilled jobs, and also unpaid responsibilities, such as caring for a relative. In the face of this figure, however, gender inequality is not a priority for 77% of respondents. However, the organization also has concrete proposals to counter women's poverty, Nkawa concludes. For example, equalizing the approval rate for credit lines requested by men and women, or a compensation system for caregivers that takes into account years not worked, or a tax credit for companies to facilitate the hiring of older women. For the last part of this installment, let's discuss the protests that are taking place in several Chinese cities and in front of some Chinese embassies around the world. The reason for the protests are the anti-COVID measures and health restrictions that the Beijing government continues to implement, which severely restrict the movement and personal freedoms of Chinese citizens. According to Guido Santivecci, a journalist for the Italian Corriere della Sera, Xi Jinping and fellow technocrats have ended up in the quagmire of an economic and social crisis that they have inflicted on themselves, chasing the unrealizable dream of eliminating COVID-19 from the nation's territory to demonstrate the superiority of the authoritarian and repressive model to Western chaos. Protests and strikes rarely seen in the recent history of the Asian giant. Last week, 200,000 workers in Zhengzhou rebelled. The city's name may be unfamiliar, but it is central to the Chinese economy, since Apple products are assembled in Zhengzhou. And it is, in fact, 
the economy that is also suffering the worst consequences of government-imposed restrictions. Economists are predicting zero growth in the fourth quarter of this 2022. Beijing has wasted too much time and too many resources without building a strategy to break out of the cage of health restrictions, as has been the case in the West, especially through the vaccination campaign. China seems to have put itself in a dead end. People are fed up with the restrictions and are protesting. But if it reopened now, with its less effective and less widespread vaccines, with its less prepared hospitals, there would be 363 million infections and 620,000 deaths in the next six months. After three years of suffering lockdowns, Santavecchi concludes, not even Xi could explain to the Chinese the severity of the failure, admitting that the party state functions worse than Western democracies. For Stefan Cornelius, columnist for Germany's Süddeutsche Zeitung, the question to ask looking at the Chinese protests and Beijing's failure to manage the pandemic is, how does the supposedly infallible system correct itself? It would all stem, according to Cornelius, from the lack of accountability at the beginning of the pandemic. The vaccination campaign was reinterpreted as a nationalist event. The pandemic was the work of the devil started by foreigners. Therefore, foreign effective vaccines were not approved and weak Chinese vaccines produced in too small quantities. Mistakes that are not talked about in Beijing, as the very narrative imposed by the Communist Party is based on the infallibility of the system they created. Thus, we return to the initial question posed by the editorial. Can Xi's party correct its pandemic policy without losing control? What the Chinese regime has deduced from the fall of the Soviet Union is precisely the crucial need to maintain control to ensure its survival. It will be its ability to correct itself that will decide its fate, the journalist argues in closing. Authoritarian systems have always collapsed when their version of the truth was no longer compatible with reality. And we come to the last contribution of the day. We'll go to the country that most rivals China at this time in history, the United States. In the pages of the New York Times, economist Paul Krugman asks what we in the West can learn from the Chinese situation. What we're seeing in China is the problem with autocratic governments that can't admit mistakes and won't accept evidence that they don't like, explains the economist, who briefly traces the strategy followed by Western countries and China. While in the West, in fact, everything was done to flatten the curve and then reopened by relying on the protection provided by vaccines. The Chinese leadership, on the other hand, was convinced that it could permanently eradicate COVID with closures, even in the face of overwhelming contrary evidence. Attempts to suppress the virus have also had a boomerang effect. Poor vaccine coverage has been compounded with poor natural immunity which can only be achieved by contracting the virus. Changing approach would now mean for China to admit its mistake, while loosening the rules would cause a huge surge in infections and deaths. In all this, meanwhile, we can learn two lessons. First, autocracy is not in fact superior to democracy. While autocrats can act swiftly and decisively, on the other hand, they were incapable of admitting their mistakes as is also the case with Russia's disastrous war in Ukraine. 
Second lesson, we're seeing why it's important for leaders to be open to evidence and be willing to change course when they've been proved wrong. In conclusion, we should beware of would-be autocrats who insist, regardless of the evidence, that they're always right. We'll end the 15th episode of the second season of The Window on the World. Thank you so much for following us. And we look forward to seeing you next Friday again with the best editorials from Europe and the rest of the world. This week's editorial work was edited by Daniel Rutza and at the microphone, it's Gail Rago. See you next week.